Let's pray together. Lord, we call out to you at this time. It is our desire, even now as we open your word, God, that we would understand. We, un- we, we grasp that you've given us your word, that we might know what is your, your will, we w- might know who you are, that we might be found in you. We thank you for the gospel that is delivered to us in it. And we just pray, even in this time, Lord, that crucial things that you reveal in your word uh, would, would fix our minds on those things that are, that are foundational, those things that are important, those things that are essential. God, we pray that you would continue by your word uh, to set us free from the trappings of our own traditions, to set us free from um, the expectations rooted in our own experience. And God, fix us humbly to listen to your word and to learn from it. God, may you always, in all places, may Christ be acknowledged as the head of the church, and may we be uh, ever diligent to learn from and listen to your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the things I want to take up this morning, just in those uh, verse 4 and 5 in Acts 16, is to look at... Uh, as they're coming now, the, the second stage of, of in the, what's called the second missionary journey, they are establishing essentials in the church. Really, as we work our way through the book of Acts, we're, we're seeing the first church plantings take place among the Gentiles in Antioch. And then we're seeing the, the gospel endeavors of Paul and Barnabas as they went out in many different places. And then how as they worked their way back through, you, as you could see, you, uh, see from uh, previous passages in Acts uh, 14, for example, as they uh, went a- along the way, they were preaching the gospel and God was adding disciples as they would hear and believe. And then they would often be pressured through circumstances providentially to move to the next place and move to the next place. Many times they did not get the time with them that they would have really wanted to. And the scriptures at times abbreviate things for us. And so we've got to be cautious because sometimes we, 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 we condense things because it will say something in one verse and that verse may span a few months of time as it says, they went back through and visited the disciples in all the cities where they had preached. That wasn't necessarily a weekend. And even when it says when they came back to those places and they assembled churches and appointed elders in all of these churches, they were there. They were there in in, in such a a season that they could recognize those who had a solid foundation, oftentimes in an Old Testament understanding, many of the early converts coming out of the synagogues, and they could stay there and train them and equip them and install the right individuals who are capable and sound in doctrine, meeting the biblical qualifications for eldership, which we commonly call pastors, that are mentioned later when Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus. And, and they work their way all the way back to Antioch, and then they serve there. Now we know they've also gone uh, over to uh, Jerusalem once again, because in the midst of what was going on, uh, uh, contentions and conflict would arise. 
And I want, it's important for us to be aware of this because sometimes we, we think in this age and, and we have this romanticized view of the apostolic church that ought not to necessarily be there. Thank God that the apostles were there to travel and to have influence. But if you listen to Paul, it was anything but easy. And oftentimes he would see what the, what's going on in a given church and what false teachers and false apostles are bringing in and then write to them, strong language, who has bewitched you? Who has misled you? Who has deceived you? Why are you so quickly turning aside? And we've got this notion that somehow creeps up in our minds. Oh, the first century church was so perfect and so blessed. It was not. Uh, there were struggles. In, in chapter 15, uh, Paul and Barnabas and others traveled to meet with where the majority of apostles were still centered in Jerusalem to deal with the issue the Judaizers were bringing. Is circumcision and the law of Moses necessary for salvation? And we've, we still live in an era where different groups strive to add something additional to the gospel of grace that is in Jesus Christ alone. Christ plus this and Christ plus that. And we know the scriptures say, no, Christ saves. It is by faith in him and what he accomplishes. But remember also. You've read 1 Corinthians. We've recently done a study in our morning hour of 1 Corinthians. That letter was written to address schism, division, problem, conflict, wrong doctrine, wrong practice in a multitude of areas. Fighting over who were the predominant leaders. Fighting over a right understanding and exercise of spiritual gifts wrongly and selfishly carrying on in their agape feasts and Lord's suppers in selfish ways. So I, I say that because there were problems, serious problems in the churches in the days of the apostles. And I'm thankful for those problems because in those problems existing, the scriptures then have the apostles by the authority of Christ, speaking to those issues, bringing correction, bringing guidance, bringing instruction, so that when we face those issues or similar issues, we have firm ground to stand on through a right understanding of God's word. And I want to put this also out there as well. In addition to sometimes a highly romanticized view of the church in the age of the apostles that is inappropriate because we've seen how many problems in Galatia, how many problems in Corinth. And further than that, sometimes people will say, oh, let me read the early church fathers because what they say will be right. Is that a guarantee? And, and, and I have to urge this upon you and I once again. What the scripture says is right. What men secondarily say is wrong. Well, well those men would have been taught by Paul, by Peter, by others. Yes, 
and sometimes they may have even been established into leadership in local churches. And then maybe John will write to a church that he possibly was integral to seeing that it established and leadership placed, and now there's a man there in the leadership named Diotrephes who's doing it all wrong. Paul had Demas training, traveling with him, and then Demas, in love with this present world, has abandoned me and gone off. So simply having the right teacher doesn't mean you continued with the right teaching. And and, and it's important for us to, to not put anything on par with the Word of God. This is what is holy, and this is what is inspired. And so the first thing I want us to to consider, and it somehow is woven into this this passage, establishing essential elements of the church, verse 4 of Acts 16. As they went on their way through the cities. Now this is Paul and Silas, and now Timothy has joined them. Uh, They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. What I want us to to take a a simple note of as as we take this up, let me read the King James here for you, because it it actually uses some good words uh, uh, that, that put this really clearly. It says, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were in Jerusalem. Now, when I, I want to take that up first. The, the first thought I want to make very clear here is the delivered decrees. As they're going to these various churches, you want to know what is not taking place. Discussions. You know what is not being formed. Committees. What is taking place is is that place in Jerusalem where most of the elders were. And it's an interesting thing, not not something I will wrestle or wrangle too much with right here. But the phrase here, apostles and elders, has but a single article. I mean, a single the, which means this is likely a case linguistically of a hindiotis, where it would be apostles hyphen elders, because we know the apostles were themselves elders, as John writes, the elder to the lady, elect lady. And so they served as, a, but they were, they were elders in their local church. They were apostles to all the churches. And that, that significant role, what, 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 and we're going to look at that in just a moment, but I want you to, to notice this. When it comes down and it says that they delivered to them for their observance the decisions, the ESV says. Uh, the King James there says the decrees. The Greek there is the word dogmata, from which we get the word dogma means this is the doctrinal, fixed, immovable decision. It's the same thing. Uh, uh, Another place where we see this. While Quirinius was governor of Syria, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that everyone was to be registered. I ask you, 
was that optional? <laughs> was, it, was it up for, well, I don't think we need to be registered in our hometowns and in our home cities. I think you ought to just send traveling register guys around and we just tell them where we're from. The decree was simply this. You got to go to the city of your ancestry and that's where you register. Inconvenient. Doesn't matter. That's the decree. I don't agree with it. Doesn't matter. That's the decree. Government overreach. In this case, again, not impinging upon any spiritual responsibilities. It's a decree. You go and do it. I love the fact that right here, once again, when the word of the apostles is being taken, the decision of the apostles is being taken, it's going to the churches, and this is what we believe. Now, what, what they are not at liberty to do is to separate and say, now nah, we're going to be more of a Judaistic a sect and and let the gentiles be a little bit more like that and we'll, and and we'll just go ahead and 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 divide that's not the way it was it was it does not matter what is your cultural background what is your earthly sense of identity doctrinal truth is doctrinal truth it is one and the same every place and everywhere. And the important thing is to make sure that wherever you are, you are saying the same thing powerfully and clearly. Now remember, what the Word of God teaches to be true is what we should, in all times and all places, declare to be true. One of the things I do remember that, that often uh, confuses me and shatters my mind, way, way back when I was in, in uh, uh, seminary, Jemima got to also audit some classes with me, and she audited with me the Missions Perspectives course. And one of our guest speakers for that particular course um, fancied himself a specialist in Islamic ministry. And as such, he, he thought he might even know better than the Word of God. I beg to differ with that individual. He, say, he, he was of the inclination that he said, look, if you call Jesus the Son of God, that will, in the minds of these people, make God a compromiser, make God have, has somehow had relations to have a physical offspring. So we will never call Jesus the Son of God when we are speaking with Muslims. I said, oh, well, what do you do when God's Word clearly says that He is? the Son of God, when Jesus himself declares himself to be the Son of God. He says, well, you know, we'll, we'll maybe emphasize sometimes like Matthew does, well, Son of Man. Well, I'm thankful that the Scriptures emphasize both that we might know his full humanity and we might know his full deity 
And how dare we empty him of any of that? If you, if you, once you separate Christ, doctrinal issues do not exist in isolation. Once you try to somehow diminish for people's comfort the deity of Christ, then I ask you this, how is it then that Jesus was a fit and righteous sacrifice? How did he bear in his body what would, what would be upon us the eternal wrath due to our sin? How did he do that? Not that I fully comprehend it, but the scriptures are quite clear of his perfection. And so that when you come to Romans, it speaks of what he has accomplished for us and what is declared in the gospel as not merely the best righteousness of a faithful man, but the righteousness of God that is counted for us. And these are not small things. And the moment you begin, what somebody thinks is the smallest of adjustments in order to be more effective, it has a ripple effect. Almost in the idea of knocking dominoes down. And when you hit that first one, they're all fallen. You know, and the scary thing is what happens if wholesale, the broad spectrum of Christianity lets that first domino fall. How much work we've got to do now to set every single one of them back up again because they've just missed the idea. Now listen, we cannot make the gospel more powerful. And we don't try to make a better gospel than the one God has given us. Because there isn't a better gospel, there isn't another gospel. This is the only gospel under salvation. And so when you start to think of this, well, let, let me improve upon it. We cannot, and we ought to be reminded of what the scriptures teach us again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What is the gospel when it was preached to the, the Judaizers in their tradition that would come to those earnest Jews? It was a stumbling block. What was the gospel when it was preached to the Gentiles with their worldview? Jesus is the Son of God. That's foolishness. That he died, that all who believe in him might be saved. That's foolishness. It is a stumbling block and it is foolishness but to those who are called. It is the power of God into salvation. And so we, when we start to get that, we recognize, wait, I don't have to somehow change it. More than that, I'm going to go further. Not only I do not have to somehow change it, I dare not in any wise change it in the least. It is dogmata. Now, this is one example. And once they had come to a firm decision uh, that circumcision was not going to be required, the totality of a, a patterned life by the 
uh, old covenant law was not going to be pressed upon them. The sacrificial systems were not going to be pressed upon the Gentiles. The festival systems were not going to be pressed upon the Gentiles. Not up for debate. Not up for discussion. And I wish that God would stir our hearts as the people of God to not get so involved in debate and discussion as much as diligent study that we might earnestly discover what the Word of God says. It's not, are my words smarter than yours? Are my ways better than yours? Am I, am I more logical? Someone can be logical, but not necessarily in accord with Scripture. And so we don't want to fall prey to that. They delivered to them a decree. They delivered the decision. Uh, it, it was done. Secondarily, this, this message was, this dogmata was delivered. There's no innovation. There's no novelty. There's no necessity of creativity. I mean, I, I, I don't in my mind imagine Paul and Silas saying, it was a little bit boring at the last place. How can we get the, make this more interesting as we... As we is, that, is that the goal? I think the goal as they go from place to place is to make sure that they understand what the decree is. Now, now, the frightening thing is, sometimes uh, in, the, in the process of trying to make things a little bit more exciting, a little bit more interesting, a little bit more innovative, throwing in personal anecdotes and stories and experiences, somehow people leave uh, not laying hold of what they should have, but remembering that cute little story about little Billy Bob. It's like... Right, in the end, little Billy Bob's experience was not, was not the thing you were to walk away with. It was to hopefully, if it was used, help illustrate this other truth, but not just. And so the, the phrase here for delivered, it is handed over. It's, it's just that simple idea, like I've got something, an envelope, a box, and I hand it over to you. It, it, there's no alteration. There's nothing but a, a clear and simple delivery. Now listen, that is of that decree. But that decree is exemplary of the totality of the dogma of Scripture. Again, I, I draw for your attention what we have in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, which I'm sure some of you are already thinking of. Because such a, a clear verse, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. And you know that's something you can write to every single believer. Our salvation is common. We were all saved by the grace of God, by the working of the Spirit, in the hearing of the gospel. None were saved in a different way. All of us, we were dead we have been made alive. We were in darkness. We are now in light. We were in the domain of sin and enslavement and the enemy. And we've been delivered to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a common salvation. 
And if someone thinks theirs is a bit different, watch out. Because there is no different. Now, there may be different expressions of sin that you had a, a, a propensity towards prior to salvation. Sure. There may be different religious backgrounds, different cultural practice, different even political uh, viewpoints, ideological things. Yeah, there can be a lot of variables, but how you got from where you were to where you are is by the grace of God given us in Christ Jesus. I wanted to write about this common salvation but I found it necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith. Now, I've, I've, I've said this in the past, and I do want to remind you of this. It says to contend for the faith. There is expression in Scripture that will sometimes say, my faith, our faith. That is our active believing the faith is the substance and content of what we believe. Which is why if you briefly look down, if you're still in Acts 16 verse 5, it does say this. So the churches were strengthened in the faith. The faith is fixed. I, I will write to you to continue uh, appealing to you to contend for the faith. And then he finishes off by saying what? That was once for all delivered to the saints. So why is it that I say that if you really have questions, nothing wrong with reading, reading the Puritans, very encouraging. Nothing wrong with reading the Reformers, much to be gleaned. Nothing wrong with, re with reading the the early church fathers, the, the post and antediluvian church fathers, and all these different kinds of things that come into your mind. There's nothing wrong with reading them. But that is not where you get truth. That is where you can see how the church or the individual was wrestling with truth or wrestling with the prevailing error of his day. But if you really want truth, the faith, that which is to be believed, you go back to the Word of God. It was once for all delivered to the saints. Which means this. Is my doctrine or your doctrine to be any different from that of Paul's? From that of the church at Rome? From that of the church at Corinth? Is it to be any different? It's not. So how do we strive to make sure doctrinally we are not different? We receive what has once for all been delivered. Now again, uh, uh, say even Paul emphasizes this passion in his own life in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He says, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, listen to his words. I delivered what I received. Which I want to note this. We're going to see in a moment the apostolic authority 
the reason the apostles wielded authority within the early church is because they delivered what they received. They were not the originators of doctrine. Again, we say Christ is the head of the church, and that's why we oft go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and following. In various and sundry times, God spoke to the prophets in many different ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. That again, that phrase, has spoken, is a completed action. Uh, further, I could and, and will say, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, I had read 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you what I received. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, regarding the Lord's Supper again, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered unto you. This is, the, this is the pattern. What I received, I delivered. What I received, I delivered. And oh, that we would be living in an age where God's teachers and preachers would take what has been delivered and just keep delivering it. No need of novelty. No need of extensive creativity. We cannot enhance what is the living word of God? Sometimes even our eloquence can become an encumbrance. Because people will get caught up in, 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 the, in the skill and the way of words. And suddenly people might come just to enjoy the sweetness of the sound. The turn of phrase. Instead of to drink in the rich truths that are being delivered. Which is why, again, if you do any study of the Puritans, though many of you might read them and find them eloquent, they were oft committed to what they called plain preaching. <laughs> because there was a form of preaching that, that, that had become so uh, performative, so showy. And they, they wanted to, again, refresh the ideas of men. No, no, no. It's the plain teaching of God's Word. Even This is what is expected uh, from generation to generation. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what is Timothy to teach? What, wait, what does Paul teach? What he has received from the Lord. What he received from the Lord, he delivered that to Timothy. And what is Timothy now to do? What he received from Paul, he delivers that to the next men. So that these men are also receiving what? What was given from the Lord. And on and on and on, that is the way that it is supposed to be from generation to generation. And then we have phrases in various parts of Scripture. And I love the way that it's stated when God gives a word. Even as he gave the law, as you come to the end of Deuteronomy, where there had been a repetition of the law that God had given to Israel through Moses, it, had, it ended by saying something like this in Deuteronomy 12.32 as he's preparing to recount it. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. Then it says these simple words, you shall not Add to it or take away from it. 
That's the clear pattern when it comes to what God has delivered. What God had to delivered to them under the old covenant, yeah, nobody gets to add to it. Nobody gets to take it away. They had not the authority to do so. Of course, Christ could come and fulfill these things, not merely abolish, but fulfill them in himself, putting an end to those sacrifices, putting an end to that veil and that temple and that holy of holies. And, and here is my beloved son. Listen to him. But I warn us again, what has been delivered of God? Don't add to it and don't take away from it. We do remember those words of Paul in Ephesians 19 and 20 as he calls the elders of Ephesus in. I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Always declare what is profitable. It is all profitable. Uh, again, I, I like the words of Agur in Proverbs 30 verse 6 where he simply says this. In 30 verse Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you. And you be found a liar. Uh, those are that strong language, uh, to which, as somebody who who at times uh, uh, teaches theology, uh, th this has this has to go stay firm in my mind because we're, we try to connect passages and connect pieces together, and sometimes men uh, begin to chase a rabbit trail that's filled with a lot of their own logic. And they begin to, uh, uh, to connect dots that, that weren't necessarily there in my mind. And, and I remember this. Listen, God's ways are not my ways. And his thoughts are not my thoughts. Therefore, if his word not says it, or if his word says it not, that's what I wanted to say. If his word says it not, and I add it. What's the likelihood I'm right? His thoughts aren't mine. His ways aren't mine. It is probable, and this is humbling, that 10 times out of 10, I'll be wrong. Because these are things that I don't know. So why would we spend our time in speculation when we can spend our time in deep earnest stewardship. You know, we don't, why waste time with speculation? I, I, I guess I would say Psalm 119 verse 89 says this, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. What a wonderful, unchangeable word. So here in the, the beginning of Acts chapter six, verse four, we see the, the delivered degrees. It was dogma. It was rules. It was delivered, handed over, no alteration, no adjustment. And it is for doing. The way that it says, it says uh, to them, for observance, the ESV says. The King James there says, for to keep. I like the word that is used there in the Greek because it has two clear, nuanced aspects to it. One of the primary aspects is guard it, protect it. The second is to observe it or do it. 
This is the, this, these are the two significant nuances of this word translated in the ESV to observe or to keep. The, the word that's delivered to us, let us guard it. Guard that it not be lost. Guard that it not be compromised. And not just guard it. We don't want to be just the guardians of doctrine and the declarers of what is right while our lives have no accord with it. While we speak of grace while being the most ungracious people. Speak of the immense and immeasurable mercy of God towards us while having no mercy and, comp and compassion and pity on others. That's unfitting. And so, uh, uh, for their observance. So if somebody was depressed, which one? Is it to guard or to do? I'm not choosing one or the other. The scriptures indeed uh, uh, push both. But let us remember some things with regard to doing. Not optional here. Everyone, Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 47 and following. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them will be like the man who built his house, dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. He does what? Hears them and does them. Listen, it's good to hear them and defend them. Wonderful. But you've got to do more than just defend them. Be those who do them. Oftentimes, our defense of them is shown in our doing of them. It shows our dedication, our sincerity. Um, and of course, your minds will go to James 1, 22, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O, o God. Your law is within my heart. I want to move on to my second point. So we see the decrees are delivered. The second point that establishes and goes with the first is the apostolic authority. This was, and he mentions it, from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Now, this is not establishing that there ought to be some uh, uh, central church somewhere with the most prominent theologians and leaders who will pass the decisions on everything. This is not what it's saying. That particular church was extraordinarily distinct. In that place, you had Peter. In that place, you had James. Gathering also at that meeting, you had Paul. And when we have the account of those who are speaking, we have the testimony of Peter. When we have the account of the judgments as they're being finally meted out, we have the declarations of James. We see the dominant role of leadership of the apostles there in the early church. Even in the early church context, we've talked about it before, how often the scripture says, and many miracles were being accomplished by the hands of the apostles. Also with regard to the gathering and the giving of gifts and funds, they were being laid at the feet of the apostles. Their significant role in the early church. But also remember this, they were the ones who would, who would be appointed because as eyewitnesses of Jesus, and they would declare what they have seen and heard. Paul, though not with them, he's told that he would be granted to see the righteous one and to hear his voice. 
so that he would be uniquely and miraculously equipped for apostolic ministry. Reminding you of that, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, after listing, when he rose from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the 12, then he appeared to James, then he appeared to more than 500. Paul then says this, he appeared last of all to me as to one untimely born. So since having seen the risen Savior was an apostolic necessity. Who was the last added to the list of those who saw the living Lord? Paul. He was the last added to that list. Now, he would appear to Paul many times over his life. He might, will appear to John on the Isle of Patmos. He would continue to appear to those on that list that were met the, qual the qualifications. When that first century finished, the apostolic role was finished among men. In a sense, the apostolic role continues to function today right here through the New Testament that we've received. Because in the purpose of God, the, the foundation would be established for the church through the apostle prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone. And so we shouldn't miss this. And even as Jesus traveled with him, in John chapter 16, God's word says this, and I, I oft remind you of this, but it's so crucial. In John 16, verse 12, Jesus says to this, I still have many things to say to you. Now, we, I, I want us to be cautious because it's good when we read the word of God to try to discover what it means for us. But listen, when a, 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 a prophecy of judgment is spoken against Tyre or is spoken against Cush, Rarely have I seen a believer say, I claim that. You know, it generally doesn't happen. So remember, you is not always you. Sometimes the you Jesus was speaking to was hypocritical Pharisees and scribes, which hopefully is not us, though we might identify with that at times. Here also, whenever you study the word and you see you, he, you've got to ask that question, who is the you? Who is Jesus talking to? And in John 16, he is talking to his apostles that have been marked out, or disciples that have been marked out to be apostles. And he says, uh, I have many things to say to you. Now, when he ultimately does say all those things to them, they will then say them to us, the churches, and write them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we would have them too. But listen, but you cannot bear them now, which we've learned having looked back a few weeks uh, on the resurrection of Christ. They were still not understanding what he was saying until they received the Spirit post his resurrection. Then they understood the things he was giving them. But it says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's a powerful statement. And it's also a very clear promise 
the Spirit was going to so powerfully work upon the apostles in their teaching and preaching ministry that what they come to know, believe, and proclaim is what? Truth. Now, listen, brothers and sisters, I wish that, that, that I could conceive of that verse as necessarily speaking to all Christians. But I might ask you this. If it was to all of us, would we have so many different denominations? I mean, if he's going to guide me or and you into all truth, how come this is supposedly your truth of baptism, and this is your truth on spiritual gifts, and this is... Uh, there is no your truth and my truth. There is the truth, and God, by his Spirit, in the working of Christ, delivered to the apostles all truth. So if I want to lay hold of truth, and you want to lay hold of truth, where do we go? To the apostles, which is in the scriptures. Again, that's not to some weird mystical meeting of an apostle in a vision out under a bush somewhere. Not, nothing like that. This is... It is in that once for all delivered in the scriptures. And he goes on to say, um, he will not speak of his own authority. I love the way that he does that. Because Jesus often in his ministry said what? I don't speak of my own authority, what my father gives. He's now saying of the spirit, he will not speak of his own authority. What, he ha what I give him, he will give to you. And so it, it keeps going on back. Whoever stands to speak. Don't speak by your own authority. Don't speak by your own opinion. There's no place for it. He carries on uh, and, and, and oh, says so much more. Um, let me say, Ephesians chapter 3 says this. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ because the Spirit would lead him, Paul, into all truth, which was not made known to the sons of of men in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here's a unique thing. What had not been made known now has uniquely been made known to the holy apostles and prophets. You know what it's not uniquely delivered to? Everyone individually. For us, Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Someone has to be sent. They re-declare what has once been, for all been delivered. Oh, there's so much, so much in this. I'm, I'm going to move on to my next point. Um, there's this. If this being true, the decrees are once for all delivered, there is a call for a bounding agreement. I've spoken about this in the past, and I don't want us to miss this. Um, I don't think, as I study the scripture, and I'll share with you why I've come to these convictions. It is my firm conviction from the scriptures that agree to disagree is unhealthy. Okay? Again, we want to, we, uh, even those who, who are confident that they're right, they are supposed to teach with all patience, correcting one another gently. But it isn't, it isn't, 
I have come through my study of the scripture to understand this poor individual is wrong, but we're just going to agree to disagree. If you love that guy and you're convinced the word of God is right, your understanding is correct, don't you want them to also know the truth and glory in the truth that you've come to know and see? And likewise, if perchance you be the wrong one, would you, would you prefer to live out your days in the delusion of your correctness, or would you like someone to keep loving you, prodding you? Hey, have you looked at this passage? Hey, you know, I came across this one again that refers to kind of what we were talking about. Why don't you, you know, have a look at that, you know, and tell me what you think of it. Don't you want that? Don't you and I want that we would continue to grow to lay hold of and know the truth? Listen to what it says in Philippians 1.27, for example. Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit of one mind striving side by side. Does that sound like there's a lot of disagreement? It goes even further as the way it's explained in Philippians 2. 2. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. Being in full accord of one mind. Now when I read that. There ought to be a moment in which you're saying, what is wrong with this guy? Be of the same mind, having the same love, in full accord of one mind. You already said one mind. Why are you, you, why are you saying it in so many different ways? Because you don't have a different view. The, the, the sense there, the word for full accord, the way that it's, it's stated in the New American Standard, it says united in spirit. It's a simple word in the Greek, which means this, be in total agreement, full agreement, harmonious. Now, is that easy? No. And so when I say uh, always agree to be patient with one another, compassionate, to speak the truth in love, and work towards agreement. I appeal to you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 1.10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you all be united in the same mind, having the same judgment. Well, united in the same mind, having the same judgment. Does that sound like, well, we disagree on that. It doesn't sound like we disagree on that. Now, listen, I want to be careful here. Do good and godly men who love the scriptures and love his truth and study it in earnestness still at times come to different conclusions? Yes, they do. Because in this life... We are not perfect. And that's why I say we treat one another with love in the midst of disagreement. But when I meet my brothers in Christ who, who hold a different view with regard to baptism, 
I, I don't think, you know, I don't think to shove my view in their face is necessarily the answer, but to continually only focus on those areas of agreement, I don't know if that's also the right thing. Speaking the truth and love, the desire is that there would be unity. And, and it also may be, it helps to sharpen ourselves. Do they have passages I've not yet considered? Do, are there bases for what they're coming from? Am I, am I, is something of the truth eclipsed from me because of my tradition? and my, my, I want to know the truth. I want to walk in the truth. I want them to be as well. All right. So I'm urging for an abounding agreement. While saying, that's the goal. <laughs> All right. Just as we say, listen, we strive for blamelessness, to be irreproachable. That's the goal. Who's doing that daily? Right. And so we strive for that. And so there's a bounding agreement. Well, brothers and sisters, we've got more to consider, so we will take this up again next week. So just the, the three primary things that we've considered today that I don't want us to lose sight of, of is this, the delivered decrees. It is dogma. It is delivered. It is for doing and defending. Further, the apostolic authority is ultimately the authority of Christ. That's why it has been delivered by God. It is not man's gospel. It is God's gospel. It is not men's words. It is God's word. So we see the apostolic authority there. And in the process of that, we're called to abounding agreement. Striving to come to agreement through our commitment to the scriptures. And in that abounding commitment to agreement... We are being gracious, patient, and loving. And remember, our discussions are not my view, my opinion, Calvin, Spurgeon, Watson. No, no, it is God's Word says. Now, at times, these dear men wonderfully illumine and explain a passage of God's Word that can be exceedingly helpful. And we are thankful for, for God using them. And thankful for the wonderful, irreproachable word that he has given us. Let us pray and then we'll sing to our God. Lord, there is none like you. And you have seen fit in your will to exercise your lordship in the church through your word that you gave to us by means of your apostles. You have not chosen to physically manifest yourself among us. You've not chosen that uh, audible voices would uh, be delivered to uh, men wandering in the wilderness today. But you have given us a firm, a fixed, and an unchangeable, faithful word. And we are thankful, God. Your word is firmly fixed. Your gospel is unchanging, whatever season, whatever generation. Your truth is not affected by culture and circumstances. God, may we seek to understand how we rightly live it out and apply it in our culture and in our circumstances for your glory and praise. I pray, Lord, we would live in days 
that there would be such a revival of earnestness for your word, a confidence in your scriptures, a passion for your truth, that you would stir the hearts of many a men to continue that earnest study, and you would unite hearts and minds. You would bring ever-increasing accuracy and agreement, because our desire is that we might know you as you've revealed yourself, that we might worship you according to what is pleasing in your sight. Oh, God, please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.